Welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. I am your host for today, John Rees, and uh, I am joined uh, by Mr. Andrew Firth uh, to discuss his new book, Pictures of the Abyss. Uh, hello, Andrew. Hello, John. How are you doing? Yes, not bad. Thanks, yourself. Very well, thank you. Very well. And uh, Andrew, uh, as I said, is the author of Pictures of the Abyss, coming out uh, in September from Mango Books. And he is also the author of uh, Past Traces, Fragments of the East End, and uh, Ripperland, um, also available from Mango Books. Whenever we have a uh, one of our side projects, Andrew designs the logo for us um, and any artwork. And uh, he also um, does some music as well for them. I think he contributed music for 10 Weeks in Whitechapel and also Sherlock Holmes from Adler to Amberley. Um, so we'll have a chat later about uh, some of Andrew's other contributions. And uh, also joining us today is Mark Ripper. Hello, Mark. Hi, guys. So, Mark is uh, the author of numerous books, um, including the co-author of The A to Z of Victorian Crime, um, The Moat Farm Mystery. He's also the author of The Notable British Trials Volume on Israel Lipsky, also available from Mango Books. Um, so, uh, I believe that Mark has been helping Andrew with some of the research um, into the uh, images and locations uh, for... Uh, Pictures of the Abyss, is that correct? That's correct. There we are. So, um, why don't we start, Andrew, by uh, just having a quick explanation of, you know, what is the book about? Okay, well, uh, the book is basically about um, the locations that the American author Jack London visited in the summer of 1902 when he was researching his very famous um, sort of... um, description of, of, of the poor classes of the East End uh, known as um, people of the abyss. Now, the, many people will have, have read it and will have seen, as, as you go through the book, there are these atmospheric photographs um, of the, uh, the East End of London. A few, a few are, are in the West End or in the city, but the majority are in the East End and the docks. And so as a result of that, they've become um, a great reference points uh, and great illustrative material for uh, Ripper authors because a lot of the locations are the same streets um, where, obviously, uh, Jack the Ripper stalked in 1888. Um, so what I've done is... Um, Many of these, these pictures are vaguely captured. So, for example, you'll get a, a photograph that just says a house to let, or um, uh, one which I'm sure we'll talk about in, in more detail later, a coffee shop near Jubilee Street, something like that. They're, they're not precise um, descriptions of what the photograph depicts. Um, but then you have a few that are, uh, quite clearly say they're, they're of um, commercial street or, um, you know, they're, they're, some, some will describe it in detail specifically where they are, but the majority of them don't. So what my book is about is basically reproducing those photographs as best, uh, using the best quality scans from the Jack London archives uh, and superimposing them into the uh, comparative modern day shots. And basically, I'm, I'm revealing um, the, the, the results of my research, basically saying that you know, I've actually found where these vaguely captured photographs were taken, because obviously, in the intervening years, many of the locations have changed, um, you know, beyond recognition. So it's really presenting that research. There are small small extracts and ordnance survey maps in there showing you which way Jack London was facing when he took the photographs. Um, and it's a kind of a, a then and now book, if you like, that's... Uh, that's it in a nutshell, anyway. <laughs> a very large nutshell. So, so what inspired you to, you know, to begin this project and, uh, you know, starting photo montages of this kind, you know, with the Jack London locations? Uh, well, it was it was after I'd finished um, Ripperland. I spent about six months just wondering what on earth I, I was going to do next because I, I enjoyed putting Ripperland together. Um, but I, I had about fifteen years worth of. of uh, modern-day photographs that I could draw upon to, to create Ripperland. And, of course, all the locations um, of the old photos, many of which came from the, the collection of uh, Philip Hutchinson, um, I knew where they were, so it didn't, it didn't take quite as long. But when I finished doing Ripperland, I spent about six months just wondering what on earth I was going to do next. And then I sort of started thinking, well, there are all these old photographs which um, are now well out of copyright, taken by, by um, uh, Jack London in 1902. 
why don't we see if we can find out where a few of those are and maybe do a general East End book. And as, it, as time progressed, I, I began and referring to um, the uh, old post office street directories at the time and looking at old ordnance survey maps and things like that, I found more and more of these locations. Um, each, each photograph was like a little puzzle that needed solving. But when I, when I came to it, um, I realised that I was actually it was actually going to be more of a Jack London book than just a general East End book. So that's what sort of turned my, turned my attention to the, the Jack London book as a whole. So it kind of evolved over time. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, do people need to be familiar with Jack London's People of the Abyss in order to enjoy the new book? Or Not necessarily. I mean, it, it certainly helps if, if you've read it, but the way that the, 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 way that the People of the Abyss is written, it, it's, it's a series of short articles. Each one's a separate chapter. So you can read the book out of order. It doesn't matter because each chapter's describing a different occurrence that, that Jack London witnessed or, or was involved in during his, his time down, you know, down and out in the East End. So you don't have to know the book off by heart. Many people will. Many people will have read it and, and read the, uh, the horrifying accounts of people, um, you know, um, living the, the very worst existence that, that you can possibly live. Um, but even if you come into it fresh, come to my book fresh, you will still uh, get an idea of what's what's happening because some of the some of the caption, some of the photos are captioned with my own writing, sort of describing what used to stand in the location and what, what's there now. Um, but many of them are illustrated just with extracts of the text from Jack London's book. So, for example, there's the the, fa- the famous. Um, the famous uh, happening of um, him going to meet Sergeant William Thick uh, for guidance in, in, in uh, going to ground in the East End, and uh, uh, with certainly with Mark's help, we managed to trace a, a photograph of the house where William Thick lived. So um, we have we have accompanying that a passage describing the time he went to William William Thick's house and, and Thick was out and uh, he spoke to the to the the servant girl and everything. So it's that's sort of how how the book is. It's sort of part, partly then and now descriptions from me and partly extracts from Jack London's text. So if, if you like to answer the question it's it's self explanatory. So a good time to bring Mark in I think. So what was the process of uh, you and Mark you know locating this photograph of uh of uh, William Fix House. Because I was very interested, you know, how people find photographs of the old locations and so uh... <laughs> um, <clears throat> Well, the, the photograph uh, itself is in the Tower Hamlets archives. And uh, Andrew and I, uh, over a couple of pints, I think, have been talking about um, the process he was using to identify. Uh, some of the key locations in the book and um, we were sort of thinking laterally around what what else can we do, what other options have we got in terms of kind of pinning down some of the answers to these puzzles that he's described. So um, we uh, so, I, so I went up to the Tower Hamlets archives and identified the photograph uh, in question uh, because of the just by searching for the street name, which was Andrew Dempsey Street. Dempsey Street. So, um, uh, so, so having found it, then there was the question of um, kind of getting the uh, the permission to reproduce it, um, and that was where um, we kind of put our heads together again and sort of knuckled down and tried to find out as much as possible about the person who took the photograph because the photograph itself doesn't belong to Tower Hamlet's archives. It, it's, it's held there. Uh, and the uh, permission to reproduce it um, is available subject to uh, the author wishing to reproduce it, undertaking a, an exhaustive search about, about the person who actually took it in the first place. So, so uh, then we did we did that for a bit and and kind of came to the conclusion that it probably uh, it probably was available for reproduction and that there probably wouldn't be a copyright issue involved and uh, kind of went from there. So a little bit of uh, trying to identify, you know, confirm it was the right location, labelled up, and then also you know trying to work out how to reproduce it. Um, 
the reason the photograph was taken in the first place, uh, it was taken by someone who was a sort of archivist or librarian at Tower Hamlets in the 60s, 1960s. Um, and it was taken because uh, he was interested in, um, uh, and the name's going to escape me, isn't it? Isaac Rosenberg, the poet. Um, and Rosen, one of Rosenberg's childhood homes was on the same street. So he wasn't taking the photograph to show William Thick's house, but it did. Hmm. Um, so uh, we looked in the British Library for, I, I looked for everything I could find about Rosenberg. Someone, I looked at someone's PhD uh, thesis from, from a university in the States in the 70s. Just anything that I could, I could sort of establish to uh, see whether anyone had used this photograph before, and if so, where did the permission come from, etc., uh, etc. Et anyway, uh, you have to come to a point at the end of this where you satisfy the archive that the, sort of, the search itself was exhaustive, and I think that we kind of, <laughs> we kind of hit the point where we thought the search was exhaustive enough that we, we really couldn't um, take it any further. Um, and I suspect it on, on the way we found out a lot more about the original um, photographer than anybody ever has in the past. So mm. that, that's exhaustive as far as I'm concerned. Mm. Um, so this, this particular image was taken in 1962, according to the book. Um, so was there much changes from, you know, the, from you know, the early 1900s, the 1960s, and then to the modern day? Uh, yes, um, the, the 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 first graph um, that's reproduced in the book from 1962, uh, you can see that um, on the left-hand side of the of the photograph, there's a modern building which still stands today. It appears in, in the modern section of the photograph as well, um, which I think is a community centre at some point. But if you look at the uh, sort of description, but if you look at the, um, the the ordnance survey map from the 1890s. You can see that the whole stretch of Dempsey Street there used to be terraced houses, and what they've done is they've demolished some of the other houses to, to build that community centre. But at that point in 1962, um, Thick's house still stood. It's the, the second one in on the photograph. So yeah. um, it basically is, um, it, you know, lucky that it was it was still standing. Yeah. But within a few years, not only was that row of houses demolished, but also um, the um, although the line of the street exists now, they actually built some modern flats straight across the street, so it's no longer a, a through street. Um, so there, there have been some changes, and Dempsey Street itself isn't—it it, it's no longer called that. It's now just part of a stepping way. So it's also to be eaten, in, eaten up into the um, what you would basically call a, you know the, the modern day housing complex that's there. But uh, the uh, the community centre on the left is is quite a a good reference point, if you like. Yeah. And you, and you kind of, you know, documented almost three separate eras of uh, the yeah. end in just this, you know, just this one location. Um, yeah. But I think it's something that your work does very well, Andrew, is, you know, documenting the changing East End, you know, and um, your, your books are a great reference point for how the areas evolved over, you know, not just the last... Yeah, I mean... I, I suppose really that's what I that's what I go for. It's, it's how things change over time. Um, many historians will will concentrate on the nitty gritty about you know how people lived and um, things like that, which which I, I certainly skim the surface of. But it, it is uh, you know the visual changes that really interest me the most, which is probably why I concentrate most on on um, actual photo um, documentation rather than than, than writing. So, so what got you first into doing this type of thing? You know, doing you know your photo montages, your artwork. I, I'll be quite honest. It was there was a guy who used to post on the Casebook Jack the Ripper website called Colin Roberts, um, and he used to do um, these montages uh, of, of, of similar to, to what I do. Uh, but he, he did them first. He, he was sort of um, doing, doing these faint, faint overlays of, of, of the old buildings in Mitre Square. Um, 
overlaid onto onto you know, the modern day Rickless format as it was at the time. Um, and he was he was doing things like um, overlays of, of old ordnance survey maps, and he was doing a lot of work. It was very 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 precise. And I thought, well, this, surely this is all going to come out as a book at some point. And apart from posting it on the forums, it ne- never did. Um, so I suppose I, I I sort of thought with with me having used Photoshop for graphics and things. Prior to that, I thought, oh, I'll have a go at doing some of these. I've got some some photos, like the the famous photo of um, of Duckfields Yard and Burner Street. Um, I'd taken several photographs from exactly the same viewpoint, so that was the one I tried first. Um, I think Hanbury Street was the second one I tried, and I just thought I'll have a go at merging these together, and I was quite pleased with the results. And so it sort of went from there. And I just thought it was a, a very creative way to do it because. You know, as well as being interested in history, I also rate myself as being quite creative. So that's really where it all came from. So it, it, basically, I nicked somebody else's idea. <laughs> <laughs> and, and improved on it. <laughs> well, if you like it. <laughs> um, so, so what's your, normally your starting point? Do you start with the old image and, or do you start with a modern one? Or Okay, well, what, what you do, you're basically restricted um, in what you can do by uh, which old images still exist. So you basically take um, a scan or a photograph of the old image. Uh, I basically just take it on my phone, and then I've got it with me when I'm out and about. Um, and it's a case of getting to the location. And obviously, that sometimes isn't the easy thing. You, you know, you've got to study old ordnance survey maps and cross-check those with Google Earth overview images. But once you've got to the right spot, you've then got to visually line up the angle of the modern shot you're taking so that the curbs go in the right direction and anything that's still there from the old photograph is, is exactly in the right position. Um, and sometimes there aren't any any modern clues at all. But, you know, sometimes just taking a photograph can um, can, can involve taking maybe, well, you need to take sometimes up to 20 photographs of the same scene at slightly different angles so that you've got at least one with the right angle. Um, because I, I because I live 200 miles away from London, I can't quite easily just pop on down to London and, and if I've made a mistake with one of the photos. So, um, so, so that, that that's that's basically um, you know what what I have to do. I, I use I use the original photo on my phone and refer to that, and then take the modern day photograph um, in comparison. And do you have an idea while you're doing that of what the finished montage is going to look like? Um, you know, because some of them have got, you know, the, the, the buildings are almost blended together. Some of them is almost like a cutaway in there or people in certain Yeah. Rooms. Yeah, I mean, sometimes sometimes I have an idea, but quite a lot of the time it's just it's just trying things out in Photoshop to see what works. Um, I mean, there's a, there's a definite one that, one modern photo that I didn't take, which, again, is, is um, all credit to Mark, um, I, there is a photograph in, in Jack London's book called, that says it just captioned a coffee shop near Jubilee Street. Now, I thought that I actually identified the location as being on Cambridge Heath Road. And then looking closely at the photo a few months back, I suddenly realised, you've got it wrong. You've completely got it wrong. It turns out that it was, um, the, the coffee shop near Jubilee Street is a lot closer to Jubilee Street than, than Cambridge Heath Road. And in actual fact, the building itself is still standing. Now I realised this at the height of lockdown, so I couldn't I couldn't very well just nip down to London. So I, I said, Mark, could you could you possibly just pop up pop up the road? And so Mark actually took the modern day shot. Um, so all credit to him. But when I when I got the photos off Mark, I then initially I was just going to stick the old photograph on top. But then I realised that because of the the angle being exactly the same, the building still being the same, I could do this kind of almost like watercolour image where the, 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 everything's modern except for the shop frontage um, and you can't really see the join. Um, so the, the actual shop frontage is the Jewish coffee shop, um, but everything else around it is modern. So, but uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was one, one I was so glad I, I, I spotted the error earlier on. But I was so glad, I had, so glad Matt was good enough to go up and take the, take the, uh, the shop for me. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that's, that, that's, that's basically how it's done. Um, you refer to the old photo and, and are guided by that. So about how long does the actual digital process take of, you know, making your average image, and there's probably different ones, it, different amount of time? And... Yeah, it, it can vary. I mean, there's the one or two that are very, very kinetic in their transitions can take hours. 
uh, there's one of um, the famous shot of uh, looking down Brushfield Street, and you've got the Spitalfields Market on the right-hand side. That one uh, is taken from the steps of Christchurch Spitalfields, and, and that one took a very long time because, in actual fact, I tried as hard as I could uh, to make it so that you couldn't see the, the, the transition between old and new. But some of them, can I, I can I can complete them in, in about an hour. But that said, they, they, they may sit on my computer for three or four months and I'll go back to them and think, hmm, maybe I could fine-tune that or do something with that, which is the beauty of Photoshop. Obviously, you can you can change things. You're not, uh, you're not sort of nailed down to, to doing yeah. things the way you did first. You can constantly change your project. It doesn't but, place until... Yeah, yeah. I mean, sometimes you've just got to tweak things a little bit here and there and, you know, and then, of course, you finish them off, um, bring out the colours and the contrast and things. So uh, it's difficult, really. I would say some of them can, can be done in half an hour, but some of them can take five, six hours in total. You know, it's, it's difficult to say, really. And even your, um, so your non non-montage photography um so I, i've got you know the, the proofs of the book in front of me now on my ipad i just like the image of of seeing botoff's church um or um the uh the bevis mark synagogue where you've got the, the the lamp there and stuff like that yeah so what you know how, how long does that type of image that you can tinker with just with the colors and stuff like that because surely that's not just what you take and no, no. What, what what happens? I mean, the photograph itself. I I, I just have this. You know, I, I try not to just take a photograph and, and, and walk off. I'll try and line two things up to, to make it an interesting, you know, foreground and background shot or something. You know, um, so you know, the, the shot just takes as long as it takes to take a shot. But um, then I, I use um, a program called Lightroom, Lightroom which uh, is actually. Um, very good for, for bringing out the you know, subtle colours and tints and things. And, um, so that's almost like processing, you know, I like like how somebody would process an old film uh, uh, photograph, you know. So that, that, can, that can be a, an afternoon's work if you're going through a lot of photographs all at once just to get them right. But, uh, that's, so, that's really... so what type of equipment do you use for taking photographs? Is it uh, SLR or...? I've used both an SLR and a um, straightforward iPhone. Um, I mean, that's the thing now. iPhones are so so uh, so good now that they are giving SLRs a run for the money. Hmm. Um, and, and there are a couple of, of montages in the book, which um, this, this was something that I learned during the process of, of researching this book. Jack London actually took panorama photographs. Now, I didn't think panorama photographs existed in 1902, but they did. Um, and the, if you go to the Jack London archives, have a look through the, the photos there, he's taken hundreds of them. He clearly had a, you know, a camera to, to take these wide-angled shots. So when I came to, there is one photograph which unfortunately is split into two in, in Jack London's book, but it shows uh, the view down uh, Wentworth Street. It's the Petticoat Lane Market. But in the Jack London archives, it is a... A, a wide panoramic view so I thought well I want to take the modern shot that I'm going to overlay it onto as a, as a panorama as well which is where you, your iPhone comes into into, into play and uh, I think that's probably the one I'm most proud of because uh, I managed to get uh, because a lot of the buildings are still there I managed to even get the window frames matching between the old and the new uh, <laughs> the new photographs so, is that the ghetto you know, market it's labelled as yes it is the ghetto market that's right yeah and in fact oh. I think it's yeah, I can see the window frames. It's fantastic detail for that. So I was kind of annoyed when I got to the, the, the uh, location and saw that there was a great big van on the left-hand side, but I thought, no, no, just what, it falls as it falls, you know, sort of thing. So, well, that's, that's, yeah. that's the modern day of the area, isn't it? You know, the, the, mm. you're going to have great big vans and people selling cheap tracksuits and stuff. You know, it's, <laughs> but that, that was one of the nice, the nice talk bits of continuity from the old old to the new is that in both photographs you've got a market taking place yeah they may may not be selling the same things but it's still it's still a a market that's been there for however long 150 200 years or whatever there's probably some similarity between the two markets to be honest looking at them Mm. (laughs) so um when you're taking some of these evocative nighttime shots, um, are you ever a bit worried about uh, unsavoury characters? Because, you know, Whitechapel <laughs> Night isn't, you know, sometimes the safest area. And No, it's not. Although I will say that, you know, in, 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 a, in a, an English winter, you can take night photos from about half past four in the afternoon onwards. You don't, you don't need to be out late. 
Um, and in actual fact, most of the time when I'm, I'm down in London, I'm usually um, meeting up with, with friends such as Mark, you know, in, in a pub. We're not, not walking the streets late at night sort of thing. Um, but no, I, I, it, the, the thing is that when Jack London was taking the photographs for his book, you, you can almost tell that he was a little bit reluctant to go into any very dark alleyways or passageways. You know, he, he obviously lived the life of um, somebody who was down at the look. Um, was, was, clear, was, was clearly very, very much uh, reluctant to go anywhere that looked too dangerous. I, so he, I, a lot of his I think we had some genuine uh, Whitechapel crime there, Andrew, so we might have... We did just have some, some genuine Whitechapel crime there going... Did, did you hear that? I, yeah. I, 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 I went <laughs> on mute. I don't know. I don't know what, what's pe- what's being picked up and what's not. Yeah, I, 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 think, I could, I could hear the sirens over Andrews. <laughs> okay, so what, what were we saying then? Uh, um, from when when Jack London was taking the photographs, are probably the best place. Yeah, so when, when Jack London was taking the photographs in 1902, he uh, he obviously lived the life of somebody who was down, down and out on the look and knew that the streets were dangerous. So when he was out taking photographs with his camera, he clearly didn't want to go anywhere too out of the way. So a lot of the photographs are just taken on main streets, main roadways, um, a few side streets here and there, but um, you know, even passageways, a photograph from, from the main streets, he doesn't go down the passageway. Um, and so, uh, as, as a result, um, the photographs I've taken have been sort of in very populated areas. And, you know, uh, if, if you, the, the kind of trouble you get these days is, is probably more from uh, people, people drunk people hassling you, as I say. But, but by the end of the evening, I'm usually one of the drunk people. So. Well, <laughs> but it's that, that's there's never really any problems as such, you know. And also, the good thing is if you're taking night shots with a with an iPhone, it can be done very discreetly. It's not like if, if I was to use an SLR where I would have yeah. to set it up on, on a tripod and then you immediately attract attention from, from anybody passing. Um, but no, it's a fairly safe area now. I mean, obviously, the, the house prices in, in Spitalfields are, are ridiculously high. You know, if you want to avail yourself of, of a former Huguenot weaving house, then <laughs> you're needing many millions to buy it. So it's, you know, it's a mixture uh, of, of uh, sort of uh, different different incomes and things. You've got council housing nearby. But in, in, in the main, I've found it a very safe area, um, certainly in recent years. I think the same as any city area at night is the same. Um, mm-hmm. It's going to have rough areas. It's going to have nicer areas. It's um, anywhere in London or anywhere in the U- anywhere in the UK was a major city. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, I mean, strange, strangely enough, in in the city of London, um, it used to be completely deserted at night because everybody went home after the offices had closed and it was totally empty. But I was surprised that that's even that's changing now. There is actually right by where the Bank of England is, which is the, um, near to the location of, of the Thomas Cook branch that Jack London went to to seek advice. Um, when I went to take photographs of it so one evening, there was a, a huge nightclub uh, with people streaming in and out of it. And this is on um, this is on Cheapside, so <laughs> literally around the corner from uh, Old Jewry, you know, from, from the City of London Police Headquarters. Um, and so somewhere you would expect to be a, a business hours only place, yeah. with pubs that, that close no later than nine o'clock in the evening. And things are changing now. You find that, um, you know, the, the, the city is staying open late and there are now bars and nightclubs that, that stay open like anywhere else. So, because the thing so is, it's quite often on the weekend, you wouldn't find a pub open. Um, on a Sunday, it's just deserted streets quite often. But uh... Yeah. yeah. It's great if you want to <laughs> I'll do that bit again, um, which which is great if you want to take photographs um, on a Sunday. But yeah, if, if you're looking for somewhere to eat, it's a bit difficult. You have to you have to come into Whitechapel. <laughs> I, re- I remember when you at, at a conference trying to find a cash point with money in in the city on a Sunday. Yeah, I was, I was wandering about for about forty minutes until I found a cash point that actually had cash in it. Uh, I, I think. For a long time, the, the only one that was that was that Barclays Bank one, just at the corner of Brushfield Street, across from Christchurch Middlefields. Um, I'm pleased to say that there are a few more now, but um, but hey, we're, we're all going to, we're all changing over to a cashless society. Aren't we? Um, <laughs> um, so, um, 
speaking of conferences, um, you know, for the last ten years, you've been involved in various conferences, um, mm-hmm. either doing artwork, images, or organising, um, which I think has probably made you one of the most pirated people in Ripperology. Because, quite yeah, you can't seem to have a uh, an article on Jack the Ripper in the national press without them having one of your images um, of a silhouette of Gentleman Jack on an atmospheric street. Yeah, the only problem is that the one that they always choose, because you can find it on Google Picture Search, is actually a street in New York. <laughs> so if they, if, they want to, if they want to illustrate um, the Whitechapel murders, they really should be looking for something better. But it, you know, it, it, is, it is something that's um, been used by uh, a leading detective magazine, and I, I, I pursued them on that, cause, and, and they, they virtually admitted to me that they've just, they just lifted it off Google Picture Search and used it on the front cover. So... Quite a few of the national newspapers have done similar. Um, yeah. Well, because that name just seems to crop up constantly. And they say, it's York. It's, it's brilliant. Yeah. yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. And I've also found that my um, a very early photograph I took of Christchurch, Littlefields with the moon behind it, um, that appeared on BBC America um, on their website. Uh, and since then, it keeps appearing all over the place. So, you know, it's... Uh... It's on the front cover of Past Traces or... Yes, that's right. That's the one. Who was? Brilliant image again. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, you and and Mark are currently part of the organising team for the East End conferences. Um, that's good. So, um, what is the process of organising one of those conferences? Then, just while we're you both. Well, I, I, I basically I basically hide myself away for for six months, do, uh, preparing all the graphics and and. Uh, Mark, Adam, and Carl do all the hard work. <laughs> so yeah. they, they, they find the speakers. <laughs> so when you come to designing the graphics for a conference, then is it a similar process to how you do one of the books, or is it? it no, I, it's actually different because um, I let myself, I let my imagination run riot when I'm doing conference graphics. Um, um, you know, I, I try and let the in, in books like Pictures of the Abyss, I let the pictures speak for themselves. But we, we, we go into fantasy land when it comes to doing conference graphics and, and things for, for you know yeah, for, for the delegates' uh, books and things like that. Um, so I, I was getting getting a little bit tired of doing uh, gas lamps and silhouettes and, and swirling fog. Um, so in actual fact, what's this time round, this, the, the current conference, which we've had to postpone until next year because of the COVID situation, um, I've gone for early 20th century lighting and neon effects and things, just just literally as a, as a change, you know. So, um, But there, there will be some photo montages in it as well, so don't worry. <laughs> I think last year's East End conference kind of went for, it was quite steampunky. Um, I tend to go that way. Most of the designs, I do like the steampunk ethos, the idea that had technology gone a different way, we would have all the, the IT that we have now, yeah, but, but it would be encased in brass. And we would have Nixie tube glowing red numbers and things like that, rather than, rather than iPhones with, with you know, your white, um, uh, you know, sans serif fonts and things. You know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a nice little alternate reality um, thing. So, I mean, for me, yeah. from my... From my perspective, um, we, as we, the way I see it is we have a sort of division of labour and uh, there are certain bits that I will do and certain bits that other organisers will do and then we leave Andrew to get on and do the graphics because that's, what, that's, you know, that's where Andrew comes in really helpful. And in other ways, obviously. Very good for moving chairs around as well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> But um, you know, I know that whatever he's going to come up with for the for the delegates booklet is going to be top quality, and um, uh, and so yeah, that's it's kind of handed over to him. I I, I don't make any aesthetic decisions. I'm not I'm not uh, uh, I'm not uh, qualified to do so. <laughs> and um, yes, yeah, so as Andrew said, you made the recent decision to postpone um, the conference with COVID. Yes, unfortunately. I mean, it, it's it's just a sensible thing to do, but it's it's very encouraging that um, our speakers have all said that you know that they're still on for next year, and mm. we've you know people have, have booked places just saying, "Yep, yeah, okay, um, 
we're, we're all ready for, for the postponed event when it come, comes around in, in 2021. Yeah. So it's, you know, that, that that's really what the, the, the conferences are built on, on teamwork for, for, for the organisers. We all do our own things, Mark says. Um, and then obviously we work, work together like Billy Ho on the actual weekends themselves to get it all sorts um, and, and yet the actual the actual, the actual um, conferences themselves once once it's all started it, the, what really makes the conference is people people coming and make meeting up and, and some people won't have seen each other for, for a good year or so they'll communicate on the internet and on Facebook and what have you but it, it gives people a genuinely enjoyable weekend to, to meet up and that's really what the conferences are about it doesn't matter how how well or how badly we organize them the, the conferences are made by the delegates and that's that they're, they're the important people you know who, who, uh, who come and uh, who come and, and be part of, of the whole thing so yeah, and there's people I met in my first conference back in 2009 that you know Adam organised that uh, yeah. you know, I now consider to be you know lifelong friends. And um, I said you know going to last year's conference, I hadn't been to one for a couple of years, so it was nice you know seeing everyone after quite a large gap. Especially people you know your people come in from uh, all over the world, don't you? You know, um, that's true. Yeah, I, I mean we have we have people from America and Germany and. Um, I'm trying to from, I think we had somebody from Sweden, and uh, you know, and obviously all, all across the British Isles and stuff. So it is, it is something that people travel a long way for. You know, I, I sometimes think that my my piffling 200 mile journey each way is, <laughs> is, is nothing compared to the, the thousands of miles that some people from from the United States travel. So you know, it's it's uh, we have a dedicated bunch, that's for certain. Ironically, it's probably easier for them to get to London than it is for us in the UK. You live, you know, the other side of the, the country. Well, some, some well, delegates, some some delegates have have said that it's uh, actually being based in, you know, the Ripper Conference has moved around in the past to uh, various parts of England, um, and uh, people coming from overseas tend to say, well, actually. You know, if it's in London, that's that's dead easy. You jump on the Piccadilly line at Heathrow and and you know go to the conference. You don't have to sort out onward travel from uh, from the airport. So yeah, it, yeah, it does work for it does work for some people. And, and even for those in the UK, London is probably the easiest city for everyone to get to. Yeah, I, th- I think you're probably probably right there. The, I mean, the transport links are great, obviously. And, uh, the, the nice thing is that once people are here, even when we're not holding talks or when we're not in the pub in the evening or doing walks, whatever it may be, people can go out and explore the streets themselves. And um, particularly from a Ripper point of view, because we tend to be in, in, in the you know the Spitalfields, Whitechapel area, a lot of people who've only seen photographs, uh, you know, online or whatever suddenly being in the streets they can they can actually re- do do they can, they can walk from Burner street to mitre square if they want to or you know they can stand up they can stand outside the um uh oh gosh uh, the, the pub the pub on the corner of fashion street i'm forgetting the name of it now uh, oh, uh, the, the queen's head the, the queen's head yeah they can stand on that uh, <laughs> <laughs> they can, they can stand, stand underneath the corner of the queen's head and, and, and imagine um you know the hutchinson standing there and, and, and trying to peer into the uh, to astrakhan's eyes and stuff like that so it's it, it's it's a it's an added bonus and of course there's a lot of great um places to visit around there the you know the lot of nice restaurants and pubs and what have you so um yeah i, th- I think the cost really- of them but uh, there's nothing you can do about that really. <laughs> well that's that's the thing you uh, the so. price of a pint in london is uh, always mm. makes me weep it, well it doesn't and in fact well, probably one of the the the, the most uh, expensive places is the ten bells um it's it, you know, the, the people who quite happily go in there and pay eight pounds for a pint and it's just thinking now even under prices that's that's pushing it yeah. and now they charge a surcharge at the ten bells for um uh if you're going in after i forget what time it is now half past nine ten o'clock there's a there's a late hour surcharge now added, added to your one by drinks i i've always thought the, the you know the ales or the beers and the ten bells aren't that good either they don't seem to be very well kept it's uh no no no, there, there are better pubs, but uh, um, unfortunately, due to contractual reasons, I can't tell everybody where they are. <laughs> <laughs> I think they rely the ten bells relies on the Ripper tourists and the city boys. Even though they claim, even though they claim not to want Ripper tours in there, 
Um, they, 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 yeah. they claim to distance themselves, but I'm sure they're quite happy of the uh, the footfall through the doors. So, so um, one thing I'm curious about, this has got nothing to do with Andrew Worry's book stall, but as I've got Mark on here, um, yeah. you, you obviously live, you know, in, in the... Whitechapel area, Mark. So, what's mm-hmm. it been like over the last few months? You know, with lockdown and COVID nineteen, because it's one um, of those areas that's always busy. Yeah, and uh, when lockdown first kicked in, um, I, I, my life hasn't changed that much. I've been going into work and things like that, um, rather than working from home. But I remember the first day going after lockdown, going in and walking up Lemon Street. Uh, so I can go and get the bus. And it was like, and this was a Monday morning, and it ought to have been like it, like normal Monday mornings. But it was like, it was like a Sunday, but an especially quiet Sunday. Yeah. Because suddenly people were not around. Um, and yeah, it's been, it's been really um, quite strange, really. It's normally, uh, uh, you know, then, then you, you it's, it's normally so busy. You did start to see kind of life returning a bit um, as the weeks went on. Mm. Um, and now you can see that things are, you know, increasingly back to normal. Uh, how, but that said, you know, it's, it, Whitechapel being on the edge of the city, um, you know, the brown bear just behind me over here uh, hasn't reopened yet, which is, and I don't, know why yet because I've bumped into the bloke to ask him um, but places like that which are dependent on to some extent at least on sort of city workers being in their office I think have struggled to uh, to reopen because the customers are not necessarily there a lot of people are working from home mm. so Things are not completely normal yet by any stretch of the imagination, uh, but you can see it's it's definitely busier than it was before. Yeah. Um, difficult. It's just difficult to know where where things go from there. Really, it's that's part of the reason we uh, felt that we couldn't proceed with the conference this year. Is that how do you make a judgment about what the situation is going to be like two or three months down the line? And it's 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 really hard. Uh, you know, in theory, Tower Hamlets might be one of those might be one of those places where the R number is increasing. Um, although, what that means in terms of like gross statistics of infection level, not so it's not so clear. Uh, but you know, local lockdown could happen. It, we just don't know, and yeah. uh, there's a lot of so much uncertainty at the moment. Uh, so that was one of the reasons why we just couldn't proceed. Is that so hard to foresee what's going to happen next. Especially if, for example, you know, you've still got a social distancing in place. People have got to be two metres. Oh, sorry, it's one metre in England, isn't it? Yeah. One, one metre. I'm sure, I'm sure they still think two metres is advisable. Um, yeah, but... Uh, what? What, I mean, the one metre, I think, is the absolute minimum. And, you know, wear a mask sort of thing, so... Yeah, see, I, I, I'm in Wales, and you know, it's some um, listeners, and we've got different lockdown restrictions than uh, mm. England has, so it's mm. uh, it's all very confusing. Like we masks well, like, aren't. Um, yeah, I, I live in I live in Bradford, which is uh, in the Bradford area, which is mm. one of the areas that's had an extra uh, lockdown reintroduced, which is that two families can't, two households can't can't mix anymore. Um, have to stay separate. Even if um, for, like, that's, that's, that's dignity. Sorry? Even if they're both for like in fair dignity. No, no. <laughs> I, I'm very, very I, I was I was making a very bad Shakespeare joke. There. Do, do it oh, again right. then. I didn't hear it either. Do it again. Uh, I'm uh, uh, even if they're both for like in fair dignity. Okay, very good. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> just, just one question. What 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 is Shakespeare? <laughs> <laughs> it's a pub somewhere, isn't it? No. Um yeah, so yeah, I, I don't think that um, social distancing would work at a conference. I try to work out how social distancing would work on Petticoat Lane on a Sunday. It's uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I I haven't actually been up to have a look at Petticoat Lane on a Sunday, uh, but maybe I should. Um, 
I mean, a lot of the part, like I say, the Brown Bear has not been open. I've seen the, the, the White Hart on Whitechapel High Street has reopened, um, but I haven't been in there. And um, yeah, there's, there's still quite a few pubs around, uh, which I'm uh, beginning to miss quite a lot, <laughs> but haven't um, reopened their doors yet. Uh, it's every, Everything's gradual and progressive and... Um, you know, pokey East End boozers weren't designed with designed with infection control in mind necessarily. Uh, so, uh, you know, people people what what you know, it must be very difficult for people to make decisions when their business has already lost four months of trade. Yeah, um, but they have they're, they're trying to yeah they're trying to keep their customers safe. It's, it's hard work. As well as that, you know, if they do reopen and our numbers rise and local lockdowns take place, what do they do with all the stock they then got in? No? Yeah, and, and that, that was, as I say, part of the problem for October. Who, who knows whether, you know, we could, we could be a day out from the conference and there could be a local lockdown. It's like, well, what do you do then? And they don't so, get out the night before as well. Yeah, right? uh, well, that's it, isn't it? You, <laughs> how, how, when could you really be sure that the, the thing was going ahead? Uh, you know, it's so it's it's all very hard, and um, you know a lot of our arrangements were made before lockdown started. Uh, lockdown happened originally, mm-hmm. so we had plans in place. Which um, you know, if situation had been normal, we would we would obviously have gone ahead. But uh, in the circumstances, uh, you know, everyone's in the same position, and uh, we have to try and keep people safe as well yeah it, it's a who could have predicted this you know when we were you know last october sitting in the astronomer um if you, if you yeah no that's right i wouldn't have believed it it, it wasn't on the horizon look i mean likewise you know going back to andrew's book very briefly it's you know when we were we were talking about uh working out uh, who owned the photograph of Dempsey Street and various other little things. When I, I went up to the British Library and we, because we, we were looking for an image of the Cheapside branch of Thomas Cook and, hmm. and eventually we figured something out and I went to have a look at various books. And now, of course, the British Library has only just reopened after being locked down. Um, Tower Hamlet's archives, I think, is not open yet. So a lot of these things... If we waited two months more, or if the if the time frame had been shifted two months two months forward, I, we couldn't have done that stuff anyway. Doing history at the moment is not easy because uh, the places you need to go to see things they're not open. So uh, so yeah, and we kind of got a, a few things in as it turns out just in time, as regards people of the abyss pictures of the abyss, um, which a couple of months later that wouldn't have been doable. Oh. No. I found that actually because, um, uh, as you know, Mark, the last time I was in London was New Year's Eve, New Year's Day, and second January, and that was a huge splurge of going around taking photos for the book yeah. because I, I, it was literally a sweep of all the locations I hadn't done a, um, a uh, you hadn't taken photos of, and I remember thinking a couple of a couple of months later when lockdown started, I am so glad that I got all those done because yeah. you know, it, it just would have it would have put the the book back. Well, it wouldn't be finished now, you know, so yeah. I'm really glad, really glad I did that. Yeah, who knows how long it's been put back for as well. Because it, it's also yeah. I mean, it's already, it's already been postponed um, by a few months because obviously the printers weren't open. Mm-hmm. It's, only, it's now being finalised and obviously we're taking pre-orders now for, for the end of the month. They've been sent off to the printers and, uh, you know, the book's being produced, so... Um, but yeah, it's, it's all. I mean, my the, my my sort of opening chapter is, is signed off with my name, and then it says Shipley, West Yorkshire, uh, January twenty twenty. I think that's that's quite a long distance, really, between me, me signing off a book and then you know it's uh, actually appearing in people's uh, living rooms. It's probably been worse, but uh... <laughs> people um... will understand. Yes, yeah, especially you know the circumstances of the world at the moment. So. What's next for you, Andrew? And what what projects have you uh, thinking of doing next? I have absolutely no idea. I'm, I'm still working on the. Um, I'm, I'm taking advantage of the extra months we've got out before the conference. So I'm still working on the uh, conference graphics. Um, 
uh, Marcus sent me some really nice material, uh, an article and uh, some photographs, which I won't go into detail about at the moment, but I'm currently sorting those out in Photoshop. So just taking my time with it, really. Um, but I'm sure at some point something will come along. Um, <clears throat> I mean, one thing I had thought about was possibly collaborating with somebody on a book. You know, maybe they, they want to write something and have, have me illustrate. I don't know. But it's just the same as when I finished Ripperland. I hadn't a clue what I wanted to do next. And it's not like I have a big long list of things I, you know, I want to um, put together and, and, and have published. It's it just, you know, something will come in, in, in the near future. I can't see myself not being involved in some kind of creative project. But we will have to see. So um, for people who want to pre-order the book, how, how, do they, how do they do that? They go to the brand new shiny uh, Mango website, which has just been, uh, it's, uh, it's all, all whizzy and um, brand new. It's uh, ma- uh, mangobooks.co.uk, and uh, you can order it from there, plus you can order any of the other, the other super titles that are, are on there, including, including Mark's Israel Lipsky book. Um, and, uh, Is it that's... a lim- limited edition um, for the pre-orders, or...? The pre- basically, if you get your pre-order in before the 31st of August, um, then you, you will get a numbered and signed copy. Um, the, there will be copies available after that date, but they won't be numbered and signed. Yeah. Um, that's basically it. So, yeah. um, and um, I'm, I'm sure there'll be multiple editions of this, just as you've uh, had with Ripperland. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's the same kind of format book as, as Ripperland, so it's expensive to print, so it's yeah. not like we're going to... Yeah. thousands and thousands of extra copies printed it literally is a case of you know if you want one snap it up when it uh, when it's available don't don't wait because um the, 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 there's been you know periods of up to a year where it hasn't been available um, just for one reason and another so um, that's that's the, the beast i i think with ripperland i i it was like the fifth time i finally managed to get a copy just because of <laughs> <laughs> not having money when it was available but uh yeah, yeah. Uh, ripperland's a fantastic book i'm sure from what i've seen of this one it's going to be uh brilliant as well is there is there gonna be a kindle version so you, you've got kindle version of ripperland haven't you there there will be there will be a kindle version of pictures of the abyss but it, it, it might not be out for a few months so yeah. we want to concentrate on getting the uh the, you know the, the actual book itself the hardback out um and then because that, that that involves uh, a lot lot of work on uh, adam wood's part actually converting all the files into uh, kindle format mm. for the uh, you know to be uploaded to to our, uh, amazon so um but that that's that's a, a distinct possibility in the future but it's really designed as a copy table style book it's not really supposed to be looked at and browsed on on a you know a three inch phone screen or whatever you may have you know it's it, it is pro- you know it's supposed to be um something that you spread out on a coffee table or reading your lap sort of thing you know yeah. so. i suppose the only advantage would be is if you kind of want to use it as like a virtual guidebook while actually you know, yeah yeah there is there is that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, there we go yeah so uh i i think we've gone for everything unless there's anything else uh you, you want to say andrew or mention or no, I, I can't think of anything. If you if you know the other questions, no. I think Mark, I, I, does Mark have any questions? That's a good point, Mark. Um, no, I don't think I do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think this will be a. I'm really looking forward to seeing the final edition of this. Um, I think it's be a really valuable book. So yeah, I'm I'm definitely going to pre-order mine um, before the 31st. Um, cool. And uh, yeah, I advise everyone else does. So uh, thank you for your time uh, this evening. Uh, Andrew and Mark, and um, we will all be together soon, able to go to conferences again soon. Yeah, and, fingers crossed. Um, yeah, definitely. Look forward to it. Thanks, gents. All right, Cheers. thanks a lot. Thanks for having me.